0: Peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast program where I feature peaceful bridge makers. Before we dive into the program and just go further, I really have one one request. I would like you to please uh, write me your feedback, the suggestions, comments, questions. It's at editor at Goldtoon.com is a website I manage with a group of international. Correspondence. For this hour, we are talking with Jordan Denari Duffner. Jordan is an author and scholar of Muslim-Christian relations, inter-religious dialogue, and Islamophobia. Her award-winning book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic, explores options for peace and understanding between cultures and religion. Jordan is known for her work studying and combating anti-Muslim bigotry with the Bridge Initiative, a research project on Islamophobia housed in Georgetown University. I am welcoming Jordan Denari Duffner. Hi, Jordan.
1: Hello, great to be
0: with you. Excellent. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. Okay, Jordan. So today is the National Anti-Terrorism Day. You know, the phrase itself and the way it has been pointed out makes me, makes me myself as a Muslim, makes mm-hmm. me nervous. Makes me to have goosebumps, makes me to feel sort of sick in my stomach, mm. and makes me feel that oh my god! So perhaps they are they are celebrating of not having me as person in this country. So it's a very um, sort of if I, I'm, I'm I'm starting it personal, but for me especially this day is. Really disheartening, and then I just wanted to see um, what you think about today and uh, and announcing this particular day as anti-terrorism, anti-terrorism day.
1: Well, I was actually surprised uh, to to hear about the day. I hadn't mm-hmm. really been familiar with it before, but I had the same reaction that you did when I first heard first heard about it because in our public discourse here in the United States, but also around the world terrorism has been linked with Muslims. It's been linked with Islam. And so just in the minds of, of ordinary um, Americans who are not Muslim, hearing that word terrorism might bring Muslims to mind. And uh, yeah, it's concerning. And it, it asks this question, who are we talking about when we're saying anti-terrorism? Is it all types of terrorism uh, or just certain kinds? And is that leading us to maybe scapegoat a group of people that we shouldn't be?
0: So are we doing scapegoat of the, a group of people that perhaps just here?
1: I I mean, I think we see uh, the scapegoating of Muslims in a lot of different realms in, in public life. Um, at the same time, I've been so heartened in recent years, the ways that people of all different faith communities are rallying together and standing up for one another. I mean, we've seen um, so many instances of the targeting of religious communities, uh, whether they be Muslims, Jews, Sikhs. Christians and others. So I hope that those bonds of solidarity can win out over um, this sort of subtle scapegoating that we might be doing in our discourse.
0: Mm-hmm. So why is it even necessary, in your opinion, as a young scholar and PhD student, why do youth and researcher is important to address this particular issue?
1: Of, of Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, you know, for me as a Christian, there's a, there's a moral uh, component to this. For, for me as a Christian, I'm, I'm taught to um, love God through my love of neighbor. And when we see people targeted for who they are, um, whether it's, Uh, the color of their skin or the religious tradition that they're affiliated with that is a problem and something that we need to address regardless of whether or not it it directly harms us so for me as a as a catholic and christian person it's important on a moral level to to respond to to those sorts of things Um, and i think people from lots of different communities would have a similar uh, response that even when i'm not the one targeted um, we need to confront injustice whenever we can
0: and then by uh, trying to confront injustice the way you can, you decided to write a book about that.
1: Yes. Yes. I had the the great opportunity to publish this book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims, with a Catholic publishing company, um, which really meant a lot to me because um, I had done a lot of research with the Bridge Initiative on the resources and the books that were out there for Catholics about Islam. And there there are some really great books out there, um, but a lot of them weren't selling very well. And then there were also books that, to go back to this point about scapegoating, cast Muslims in a negative light, perhaps um, uh, spread misinformation and misunderstanding about Muslims. And so it was really, uh, I felt very fortunate to be able to, um, to put my experiences out there um, and to... Hopefully, push back against some of the the unwarranted negativity towards Muslims that sometimes occurs in my own faith community.
0: Jordan is all about you, and it's all about personal personal stories. So, how come you decided that this is the route you would like to take to talk about yourself, and you put yourself out there to explain things that matters to you?
1: I think one sharing our stories is a great way to connect with other people. And also I had met so many um, wonderful Muslim individuals in my course of study, in my time in college, and my time living abroad in the Middle East. And I wanted um I wanted my own my own Catholic faith community to get a chance to meet a lot of those people and to also hear about my experience and the way that interreligious dialogue with Muslims impacted my faith life and my relationship with God in a positive way. I think how
0: how did it how did it impact it? How?
1: I mean, it's there's so much I could say, of course. But for me, I think sometimes there's um, this assumption that uh, engaging with people of other faiths can take you one of two directions: either you learn about a tradition and you really like it and you convert, or you encounter another tradition and you really don't like it, and then you re- you know you remain in the the place where you are. The experience that I had was that I, I came to really. Love what I found in the Muslim community. Love what I learned about the Islamic tradition. Um, but but also found myself in that admiration. Also finding things in my own Catholic commu- in my own Catholic faith that I wanted to hold on to and that I also grew to appreciate. Um, sometimes the way I put it is seeing the beauty in Islam helped me to recognize some of the beauty in my own Catholic tradition.
0: Give me a specific examples. I want a specific. Example. Sure
1: there was one uh, occasion when I was in college, um, when I was, uh, I went on a Muslim prayer retreat with the local Muslim Students Association. Um, and I went to Georgetown, which is a Catholic university. So we're fairly unique in that we are a Catholic school, but we have uh, faith uh, activities for other religious, commun- other religious groups. And um, I was kind of interested to go on the Muslim retreat. Uh, I was still identifying as Catholic at the time, but interested to learn more about other religions and our imam said come along we'd love to have you and um i was praying um we were doing a sort of extended session of of salah or you know muslim prayer in the evening um and they welcomed me to, to join in which was wonderful and as i was standing there and and a part of this prayer uh, tradition it's not my own um I realized that I had this desire to not hold my hands in the way that Muslims might sort of like under on their stomach or like on their sides but to actually fold my hands in the way that I'd grown up doing. Um and it was this moment where um being a part of this other uh faith community or or having this immersion into another tradition helped me to appreciate what I'd grown up with because at that time I was not really sure I wanted to be Catholic anymore. And um, the hospitality that I experienced with Muslims, this, these experiences in prayer helped me also to appreciate what I had in my own tradition.
0: You said that in, in, in the in interfaith dialogue or in any kind of dialogue that we have mm-hmm. among between different religions. So two things happen. One of the things that may happen is that you probably just convince the other person and they convert.
1: I mean, sometimes that happens, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but here's the thing so if so what
0: what is it about dialogue and discussion and winning over the reasoning that we feel we whether need to um, protect ourselves against uh, the idea that is coming at us or mm. keep reasoning, so then we win over the the dialogue if that makes sense. So what this kind of reasoning and intellectual interaction do produce that makes us to be too mindful about our discussions.
1: So um you know I think I, I, I should clarify that for, for me, the purpose of interreligious dialogue, people should never go into dialogue anticipating that they're going to try to convert someone. You know, we as as you know Christians and Muslims um hoping that people Become a part of your faith tradition is is a, a pretty important part. Uh, you know, in the Christian tradition, we sometimes talk about that as evangelization. But for for Catholics, evangelization means something bigger that includes a kind of dialogue that isn't intent on people um, that you, you know you convincing someone to become Christian. So um, what the way I think about dialogue is not necessarily um, this sort of debate. Uh, or or competition that goes on, but rather this common search for truth that we take together. In the book, I talk about this metaphor for dialogue that I really love. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a little story um, to illustrate it. So uh, back in the 1990s, there was a Catholic priest who was living in Algeria along with a bunch of um, other monks. I think there were uh, about 10 monks living in a monastery in Algeria. And Father Christian, the head of this group, he uh, had a, a close relationship with a Muslim friend named Muhammad in the in the neighborhood. And they would often get together and uh, talk about faith and just hang out. And uh, they talked, they, they called it digging their well. That was the metaphor that they used. And one day father, um, or I should say one day Muhammad came by and he would say, okay, Father, are you ready to go dig our well? And Father Christian, he sort of had, you know, I guess maybe an attitude that day. And he said, well, what do you think we're going to find at the bottom of our well? Is it going to be Christian water or is it going to be Muslim water? And Muhammad replied and he said, you know better than that. It's it, it's God's water. It doesn't belong to either of us. And so for me, that's how I see dialogue. It's this common, this common task that we undertake that has God at the center. Um, and it's not necessarily about either party converting or trying to convert the other, but rather this um, this joint conversion that happens that within our religious traditions we both can grow closer to God, and that's what my experience has been. I haven't changed my religious affiliation in dialogue with Muslims, but I I, I hope and I think that those relationships and friendships have led to myself and those I I spend time with, you know, growing closer to God.
0: So, are we trying to include? so many people or any, every people, every person in this, in this kind of dialogue?
1: So in a sense, yes, in that uh, this is not some, a, a kind of dialogue that necessarily has to be scheduled on the calendar. Um, I think this sort of dialogue, uh, the, church, the Catholic Church talks about it as the dialogue of life. It's simply living alongside people who are different from us, whoever we happen to come into contact with. Um, sharing our joys and our sorrows—that's some of Pope Francis's favorite language. And so, you know, it's not about checking all the boxes. You know, have I have I done my dialogue with my Jewish friend, with my Muslim friend, with my Hindu friend? But I think it's about being present to the people that are around us and in our lives, and uh, you know, living living out um, this dialogical relationship in that way.
0: Who are we living out? So, so mm. this is this is my problem in the interfaith um Discussion so they keep talking about it this Abrahamic traditions and people who has been believed in I mean this specifically three right. three specific uh traditions from uh, Abraham and then i th- keep thinking we are I mean, leaving out almost half or half of the world right. who are not in the Abrahamic religion and then they are not believed even in God so so why do we, in the when we say interreligious or when we say interfaith, why are we not including those people who are not believing in God?
1: Well, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, I think part of part of the reason is that certain religions, for better or for worse, have been labeled major religions. And then others get left out, even though they might say have larger numbers than some that we consider part of the in-group. I think in terms of the inclusion of, of non people who don't b- believe in God, um, it's, it, it's sometimes a matter of how these things are framed. Um, you know when we say interreligious dialogue, we're assuming sometimes that everyone has some sort of belief in God. Uh, I don't know if the terminology needs to change um in order to include other um people who don't believe in god that probably is the case that being said i think even within you know even among those who do profess a belief in god or the same god there's still so much opportunity for conversation and learning and you know so i I still think it's valuable even when we can't reach everyone in one setting to still do some of this um, one-on-one other forms of dialogue that unfortunately, can't include everyone, but are still, um, still can have some fruitful outcomes and improving understanding and, and going on this journey, um, you know, to God, so to speak. Yes,
0: Uh, I'm going to change the gear, and I'm going to focus on Islamophobia, then we are Mm going to come back to your book, and more specific about the examples and stories. But on Islamophobia, what did you find in your research that really really bothered you?
1: Um, so I was working uh, full time at the Bridge Initiative uh, from uh, basically during the, the Trump election, or I should say the 2016 election campaign, um, which was very much dominated by the, the campaign of, of President Trump and others. And the thing that troubled me the most was that anti-Muslim groups that we had been tracking, and I had, you know, even before I worked at the Bridge Initiative, been reading about and tracking for a long time, that were fringe groups, they were, you know, maybe, um, involved in Republican politics or, uh, you know, having an impact in some ways, um, in the American, you know, public sphere, these people started to be tapped as advisors to the political campaigns on the Republican side. And then when the Trump administration came into power, some of the top people had worked directly for anti-Muslim groups or had won awards from anti-Muslim groups or had collaborated and worked with them in some way. And so this was really scary that, that, you know, I mean, Islamophobia has long been a problem in American politics when either, whether it was latent or, or more subtle or more explicit, but I had, I mean, we have never seen something like this where people who are a part of anti-Muslim hate groups are advising, you know the presidential administration on different matters of policy, and so it's no surprise that we saw things like the Muslim ban. It it was I mean these are the sorts of things that these anti-Muslim groups had been wanting to see for a long time. So that that for me was was really troubling.
0: Is it going to get better if um, we have the same administration?
1: So I will say that some of the some of the individuals that. Actually, many of the those particular individuals who I was initially concerned about have since left the administration. But that does not mean that does not mean that there aren't still folks um, who share those views. Um, so, I mean, I I, I hope I, I hope there are ways that um, the administration can change ideologically. I just don't see it happening. I mean, I, I I know there are people pushing for change in in you know big and small ways inside and outside the administration, but I, you know, I haven't I haven't seen. I think the reason why we haven't heard as much um, of the blatantly Islamophobic rhetoric um, recently from the administration, and we have heard some, but is because we're we're not in a frenzied election situation, uh, or run up right now. I mean, we are moving in that direction now in 2020, but with COVID-19 it's been different, but I, 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 do worry as, as we get closer to the election that a lot of the anti-Muslim rhetoric and then eventual policies are going to ramp up again.
0: So it's going to happen because it sells. It's going to happen because gets the ratings. So it's going right. to happen for why, what, what reason?
1: oh i think I think uh financial for sure um I think there are individuals who benefit financially off of scapegoating people. One of the things I really appreciate about Pope Francis is he constantly is talking about the arms trade and the way when he when he talks about um misunderstanding between religious groups or or you know groups from different countries, he oftentimes brings up the issues of 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 the arms trade and war and the ways that Fueling conflict and ideological conflict between people makes other people money, (laughs) and 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 um, and fuels you know fuels conflicts around the world. So I think that's part of it. I also think it wins people political points. Of course, Um, I mean, in the 2016 election campaign, when Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump each had their um, surges in the polls, it was a direct result of anti-Muslim comments that they made uh, that appealed to their base. So it's it's all of those things. I think, you know, of course, there are people, you know, I think the vast majority of the American public, say, who they are not intentionally, uh, you know, anti-Muslim in a way where they know they're getting something out of it or they're not getting something tangible out of it. but I think in terms of these movers and shakers um, and people in politics, they definitely benefit in in tangible ways from uh, promoting bigotry.
0: We do have other religious minorities like Jewish minorities. So why they cannot make the box out of attacking those uh, that minority group, do you think?
1: Well, I, I actually think the Jewish community has been at the receiving end of a considerable amount of, of discrimination and scapegoating, um, particularly, mm-hmm. yeah, particularly since 2016. Um, hate crimes against Jews in the United States are far, have, have far exceeded anti-Muslim hate crimes within the past few years. Um, so it, it's definitely a, a, a big problem. Um, and even though in mainstream political discourse, um, you don't hear as much uh, scapegoating of Jewish Americans, you, we are hearing it more and more um, on the fringes or in popular discourse. Um, I recently have been on social media and seen some of the anti-Semitic signs or messages that people are ho- holding up at some of these uh, protests against um Again, some of the the measures that governments are taking with COVID nineteen, basically blaming Jews for what's going on, which is a, I mean, a a horrid and longstanding um, uh, anti Jewish trope to blame Jews for you know health crises or plagues or things like that. What would be the
0: gain if they do that? So, what would be the gain to blame Jewish community?
1: Oh, um, I mean, I think it it does win people political points in a certain. You know, in a certain sphere and things like that. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm not as well versed um, on that. So I, I, I don't want to speak too much on it. Um, but like with anything, when when there is when there is a group to scapegoat that can that we can blame for our problems and then kind of move on, you know, there are people that are going to benefit from that.
0: Absolutely. So in your book, uh, there are uh, there are not only stories, but also some of the suggestions that Mm -hmm. we could do uh, to um, to address this particular issue, particular issue of dealing with people that we do not know, Mm -hmm. and then how to broaden our own perspective about the uh, the other group. So what are those suggestions?
1: So um, I think one one suggestion that I would have is for people to really grapple with um, the stereotypes that they hold on to about people of another faith tradition. I think first you have to learn what those stereotypes are, <laughs> um, so that's important. Um, but then to seriously reflect in inwardly on, am I holding on to these um, biases and stereotypes? Um, when I was living and studying abroad in the country of Jordan, I um, I was one afternoon doing my home my Arabic homework, and uh, I, I was I was living with a host family at the time, so I was in an ordinary neighborhood, and I was sitting there doing my homework, and I heard outside this man yelling very loudly um, in the street. He was yelling out of a megaphone in Arabic. He sounded very sort of angry and. Uh, emphatic in what he was saying. He was speaking in a very rushed way. And I, at the time, didn't, um, I didn't know the the dialect of Arabic spoken in Jordan very well. So I had a hard time hearing and it was sort of garbled, but it sort of worried me because I thought, oh, who is this? And this, this was during the um, the Arab Spring period. And so I wondered, is this person trying to rile people up to, you know, topple the government or something? What is going on? I had all of these things running through my mind, all of these um, sort of stereotypical worries. And so I asked my host mother, who was walking by my bedroom, I said, who is that man outside? Who is that speaking? And she said, oh, that's just a guy selling fruit out of the back of his truck, selling produce. And I was so embarrassed that I had immediately jumped to this um, kind of stereotypical assumption about the person outside the window. I had, by that point in my, my studying and in my career, I was, was already really familiar with the stereotypes that exist about Muslims and Arabs and actively was trying to help my community overcome them. And then in that moment, I was confronted with my own bias that, you know, I couldn't have imagined that someone would be yelling about something as innocuous as bananas and zucchinis and tomatoes and <laughs> all of those things. And, and instead, I immediately jumped to what was most stereotypical, stereotypical. And so I bring that up and I tell that story because it shows that whatever good intentions we have, you know, I, we may think of ourselves, you know, as peacemakers, you know, as, as your show kind of puts forward, but we all have these, you know, stereotypes. And so we have to be really vigilant and constantly be working on them in ourselves because only then are we going to be able to, to affect things beyond ourselves.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like this stereotype that I just had about the Jewish community. And I just learned that they are, I mean, I know that they are suffering. I have a ton of very close Jewish friends, but to know that actually it's it's the very important mindset that uh, goes into my viewing the a perspective. But what are your stereotypes against? I mean, if you can just number a few of them about you know Islam or about Jewish community or about you know this this party or or about Catholic uh, faith that you think um, it is a stereotypical belief that I I'm, I, I do have.
1: Sure. So um, I guess to start with some some stereotypes about Muslims, um, the most common one to go back to the terrorism point that you made earlier, this idea that Muslims are inherently violent and that their religion promotes violence. um, That's uh, probably the most common stereotype. Um, You also have the stereotype that um, Islam is oppressive to women. And so there's this uh, assumption of, of misogyny on the part of Muslim men. And the submissiveness that that Muslim women, of of Muslim women. You also have the stereotype of Muslims wanting to impose some sort of foreign law on the United States. Um, we heard a few years ago um, all of this, uh, you know, all of this chatter about oh, Muslims wanting to bring Sharia law to America, as if Sharia is this single um, legal system that is, you know. Uh, unanim- unanimously um, horrible, whereas Sharia and Islamic jurisprudence is a lot more um, diverse and complicated than that. And so, what I find um, sort of uh, ir- not ironic, but about these um, stereotypes, but illuminating is that they were also ha- they were also believed to characterize U American Catholics in previous generations. So. When my great grandparents from Italy, for example, were coming to the United States, um, you know, a few generations ago, Catholics were seen as anti, you know, unanimously anti-woman and trying to impose this sort of foreign papist law on the United States um, that we were, um, you know, kind of uh, engaging in these machinations to try to, you know, infiltrate the government and overthrow the constitution. So, The thing I always point out to people is um, the the way that these stereotypes just get recycled and recycled and recycled to target whoever is the the easiest community to scapegoat at the time or the newest um, community on our shores or those sorts of things. Um, So those are just some examples.
0: So aren't those, some of those stereotypes are actually based on some of the, um uh, some facts and realities? I mean, just going back, probably I can say because I'm Muslim, but uh, many, I mean, we do have laws, at least in Iran that I know, that is just so much against women. And then women are oppressed. So in a way that it's true, but I think the point that we are missing to make is Yes, there are so many of those wrongdoings or wrong things that is, exist within the community, but there but there's also so many solutions and so many actions against those wrongdoings that we are not talking about. And, and yeah. And then I think that is one of the one of the major issues. For instance, I mean, I can talk. Very, very, very determined uh, facts about Iran and about the United States. And I know that the women's movement in Iran is very, very strong, but we do not cover and we do not talk about that. So, therefore, we're just talking about that particular. Very good. So, I. The stereotype against Catholics you mentioned, about Muslims you mentioned, and is there any kind of stereotype about Jewish people? I always think that, I mean, there are some some very positive stereotypes. For instance, I always think that Jewish people are very clever, (laughs) always very well educated, or they are, um, I mean, they they understand finance really well. So there are also sometimes uh, positive stereotypes about, about the community.
1: So those, in a sense, have a, a positivity to them. At mm-hmm. the same time, though, um, they've been used to claim that Jews are trying to secretly take over things, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Sort of like the the example that I mentioned with Catholics too. So I think we have to be really careful about those sorts of stereotypes because um, they are used to. I mean, one, they're again a generalization; they're not something that's actually representative of of um, of that community. And two, they're they've you know, going back into you know European history and beyond have been used to say, "Oh, well, look at look at that community there." So, what um, we
0: can do? What we can do to address or fight against the stereotypes?
1: I think one, it's letting people know that they those are stereotypes and that mm-hmm. they're not reflections of reality. And one of the ways that that will happen is through interpersonal um, dialogue. But, but it's also about um, education on sort of a more mass kind of level and giving people the tools to recognize these stereotypes, right? So I think that's really important. And to also point out, as we've talked about before, the interests that benefit from us labeling groups in a certain way, and that can see... Yeah, I just think that's, you know, that's, that's gotta be part of it too.
0: You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show where I feature peaceful bridge makers. In this hour, we are talking with a special guest, Jordan Denari Duffner, author, scholar, and PhD student at Georgetown University. So, I mean, I am learning a lot from Jordan about how to fight uh, against my own stereotype and how we are labeling other communities and, and other cultures for some, some particular benefit. Jordan, uh, I wanted to just read a few of the numbers that I've prepared for this show, and I want to get your reaction. It's about uh, terrorism and Islamophobia so here's the issue it's it's been said that we are uh, the united states is under threat of these muslims are coming over and trying to take over and to kill us and so forth and so on but here are the numbers according to the research the number of terrorist victims in the united states minuscule so for the context thirty thousand two hundred eight americans died from fall 38.8 Thousand from poisoning and 33.8 thousand from motor vehicle death. And only 88 people total. And that numbers were from only one year, but 88 total death from year 2001 until 2015. And that includes San Bernardino, um, a terrorist attack. So, and then here's the fact, the expense of war against ISIS From August 2014 until July 2015, less than one year, it was $2.74 billion, about 9.1 million a day. I think we touched based on that because of so I many political issues and um, government issues and so forth and so on. But I'm still so fascinated to see what is the real reasoning behind many of those propaganda, perhaps.
1: It's uh, yeah, it's it's hard to, to say. And you you make some you pointed out some really you know, striking, striking details and statistics about casualties of certain from certain types of violence. I think for me, the thing that's really important to think about and that I I encourage people to think about more often is what types of violence are we labeling terrorism and what types of violence are we not labeling terrorism? Um, I think it's only really been since the shooting at the black church in South Carolina that we have started to use the word terrorism not to, to not describe or to, to to describe forms of violence that have not been committed by muslim up until that point in the united states i think the word terrorism basically equaled supposed muslim perpetrator and or or violence that was committed by someone out of a, a some sort of Islamic religious conviction or something, we have started to see a bit of a shift in 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 using that word in a in a I think a more accurate and fair way to not just use it to talk about uh, people who are committing violence um, out of a particular ideology or from a particular religious background. So I think that's something um, to think about. I, I think you also point uh, pointed out the numbers of victims of groups like uh, ISIS or others um, in parts of the Middle East. And you're right that the vast majority of these people are Muslim. And of course, you you have people of other religious communities, including Christians, who are um, the victims there as well. But I think, uh, unfortunately, in this country, the narrative often is it's Muslims who are the aggressors and us, we who are the victims, um, when I think, obviously, the statistics show that it's a lot more complicated than that. And so it's it, the important thing, as you mentioned before, is to complicate that narrative um, and to show forth all the ways that that those stereotypes and that clash of civilizations narrative isn't true.
0: Are we listening? Have you seen? in your experience that people are paying attention? I think in the beginning of the program, you just mentioned that this interfaith dialogue and in this talking in within the communities and so forth has helped tremendously. So I think we are listening, aren't we?
1: I think there are real improvements that are, that are happening. Uh, I've seen them in my own faith community. I've been really um, heartened by the ways that Catholics have stepped up to the plate in certain respects. I think we have a long way to go, but I think people are learning. Um, I've had, when I go around and do talks about my book, I've had folks come up to me and say that they've actually recognized their own biases or stereotypes, and that they're working on letting those go. Or, or you know, I had a a young man come up to me recently um, after a talk, and he said, "You know, I have Muslim friends, but I always like in the back of my head had this." like this concern about them and wondering like if they were really like, okay, like, was it, was it really okay to like trust them or, you know, had them. And he said, and I realized that I need to, I need to let that go. And so I think people really are, um, they're trying, you know, and uh, that doesn't mean that everything's going to be rosy, but I I'm seeing signs of hope, even as, as things still are are bleak in some respect.
0: So what would you think that probably Jesus and Muhammad to say to each other, if they would ever
1: met. Oh goodness! Um, I think this sounds strange, maybe, but I think they would laugh a lot. I, I I have a feeling from what I've read about the prophet and about Jesus that they were both pretty lighthearted individuals who you, were dealing with a lot of really challenging issues in their societies, and really, I mean, were persecuted for it, right? But I. My sense is that both of them um, had a lightness about them that allowed them to still find joy in in whatever circumstance they were dealing with. So I, I don't know if I can imagine what a conversation would look like, but I, I just imagine both of them to be kind of joyful, happy people that are able to maintain that amidst all the, the difficult things that they had to deal with.
0: Mm-hmm. What did you like the most from Islam? Can you name specific thing in Islam mm-hmm. that makes you think more about the universal God?
1: In terms of the Muslim conception of God, um, I really enjoy and appreciate the um, the 99 names of God. I, I recount a story in the book about um, sort of feeling comforted by um, hearing those recited during a, um, a difficult time. But what's been most, um, I think, illuminating for me and interesting um, is this emphasis on God's rahma or God's mercy um, or compassion or beneficence. There's lots of different ways people translate it. Um, but what, his, uh, what I really like about that is it resonates a lot with what Pope Francis often talks about. So um, Pope Francis often talks about God as being merciful and, um, what what he's drawing on there, and also what the Islamic tradition is drawing on, is this maternal um, quality of God. You know, oftentimes, especially in the Christian tradition, we think of God as masculine, or we might use um, masculine pronouns to talk about God. Um, but when we invoke God as merciful, and particularly as um, Al Rahman and Al Rahim, the all, um, the all compassionate, the all merciful. We're invoking this um, sort of motherly quality. Uh, the word raham in Arabic means, you know, the the insides, the womb, the intestines, like these familial um, family connections that um, that people have and that God has with us. And so, um, when I hear, you know, my Muslim friends praying using that language, and when I hear Pope Francis talk about um, God as being all merciful, um, that's something that I really cherish and I find. Um, to be a a really great point of commonality between the two religious groups. So
0: what is from the Muslim, Muslim perspective that you would like them to know about Catholicism?
1: Well, first of all, I will say, I think Muslims know a lot more about Christians and about us than we know about Muslims (laughs) simply because at least in this country, right? Um, Because, you know, it's there's just many more Christians, and the holidays are ubiquitous, and all of that. Um, I, I don't. I'm trying to think. Um, about about Catholicism, I'm talking particularly, about yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, it's it's hard to pick because it's such. a, the tradition is the Catholic tradition is so rich and full of of so many things. Um, I guess I would. Want them to um, oh goodness, maybe know just know more about who Jesus is to us um, and mm-hmm. why why we're able to affirm Jesus as divine in a way that doesn't um, conflict with uh, a monotheistic view of God. Tell um, me. I, I, I want to know.
0: <laughs> I want to know, Jordan. Tell
1: me. Yes. Yeah, so um, so it, it, it's it's more complicated than this conversation could um, that we could do with this conversation. And, you know, one of the one of the cop outs that that Catholic priests often use, I think, is that, well, the Trinity is a mystery. So we can never really understand it, which mm-hmm. I, I agree with. You know, I, I agree with. But at the same time, I think it 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 leaves something wanting and people really want to sort of understand um, what, what that's all about. So the, the way I, the way I understand it, um, this idea of the Trinity, the father, son, and the Holy spirit, um, is that these aren't necessarily different three separate deities. Um, and this is what the, the church teaches. It's not three different gods, but it's rather these, uh, relationships in God's self. Um, I, that sounds sort of weird, but it's, um, that, that's the way the church has talked about it. So it's, there's There's a relationality in God. Um, we not only talk about God as Father, Son, and Spirit, but also love uh, or lover, beloved, and the love between them. So God isn't simply for us this sort of like monad, this singular being by God's self, but there's a there's a a communal aspect to who God is. And that's what Christians are talking about when um, when we talk about the Trinity. Now I will say that a lot of times in our practice and in the way we speak, it, that doesn't always come through. Um, and indeed, there might be some Christians that when they when we pray, um, you know, sometimes we'll pray to Jesus or sometimes we'll speak of the Holy Spirit and sometimes we'll pray to God the Father. So it, that language makes it very confusing, um, and even Christians themselves might not always get it right. Um, but I also, it you know, in my in my study of islam which always needs to expand and grow and i need to learn more um you know i i I at least remember reading something in ibn Arabi, um one of the mystic writers who had this sort of notion of god as loving and um there kind of being a relationality to it so i know it it there's there's ways that it could resonate with the islamic tradition even though um you know it's it's not something that muslims are you know the trinity is not something that muslims want to affirm So.
0: Mm Okay, here is uh, my challenge. I am not Islam <laughs> expert. I am not a Catholic expert. I just say what I understand about, about the faith, about my faith, and then can going to explain. So in the Islamic tradition, we believe that uh, God spoke to a human directly and through book and through his book, and then that book was Quran, and then we believe that, okay, this is God's words, I mean, God just directly, okay, you get that. And then in the book, uh, it's uh, very apparent that God says Jesus was a very special person, not Unlike any human, unlike anything on this planet, special. Right. And then we believe that from the get-go. I mean, his his birth was a miracle. His his existence was miracle. Everything about him was miracle. But it's in the book says very specifically that he was like the one of one of God's creation. And then when we say. I have never seen anyone to explain the Trinity in a way that makes sense to me as I believe God is one. yeah, and I think that's a sort of sort of misunderstanding
1: and 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 it's also it's okay for us to disagree too. um yeah. I think that's part of it too. We had a so I had the, the great privilege this past semester of, um, sitting in on a course about early Christian history and the formation of early Christian doctrine with some of my Muslim friends and colleagues in the program. Mm -hmm. And it was, I I so valued the questions that they would ask because they're not questions that I would ask necessarily. Cause I just, it's, it's, second nature to me or yeah, I'm just saturated yeah the <laughs> right. mind
0: saturated by but by, by, by what we know so you are talking about getting together having dialogue and unifying um, having unifying moments um, yeah I think um, how so I, I think in in, in our uh, yesterday in our discussion I, I just asked you if you could share with us the call of action that yeah. you think um, from the Muslims um, uh, part they need to do and from the Catholic sides they need to mm-hmm. do. Yeah, okay, so call on action. I think that addresses this this question. So what is the call on action uh, that mm-hmm. we need to do for better under- understanding?
1: So I have a few things. The first um, is... Uh, I encourage everyone to follow more people on social media who don't share their religious um, or national background. Um, I think for me, one of the most fruitful, it's a very fruitful way to get to know people's, um, the way that religion plays out in people's lives. Um, Just during this past month of Ramadan for my Muslim friends, you know they're posting all about if uh, you know the virtual iftars that they're doing, or the ways that they miss tarawih prayers, or um, all these different ways that um, they're living out their religious lives during COVID nineteen. Um, and so, you know, especially during a time when like this, when we can't be together in person. Um, connecting over social media is a really great way for us to not only have conversations, but also to just kind of witness and see how other people live out their lives and what their relationship with God looks like. I think a couple other things. It's important that we let um, religious others speak for themselves. Um, This is more of a philosophical point, I guess, but rather than listening to people who, maybe have a bone to pick with a particular religious community and who want to define them in a certain negative way, um, we have to go to the source and we have to say, you know, who are you and what is your religion about for you? Because I think sometimes when we don't hear it from the people that hold these convictions, um, we can be led astray. Um, I think when we're talking about uh, comparing different religious groups, uh, and this gets to the point that we made earlier, we have to compare apples to apples, not apples to oranges. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't compare the best in our own tradition or an idealized version of ourselves with the worst possible image that we have of of Muslims or whoever the other is. Um, you know, I'm not going, it, it's not fair for me, for example, to compare Mother Teresa to an ISIS fighter in in Syria or Iraq, or to say that Christianity is defined by Mother Teresa and that Islam is defined by ISIS. Um, that's, that's not a fair sort of comparison. Um, as I mentioned earlier also, I think it's important for us to actively learn what the stereotypes and generalizations are that exist about different communities and then confront them and wrestle with them in ourselves. Um, I think we're only really able to push for change beyond ourselves once we begin to do that internal work in our, in our, in our minds and in our hearts. Um, and then I think lastly, we need to stand up for each other. We need to stand with each other um, and not just in times of crisis like COVID-19, for example, or after some sort of a hate crime, um, but in the long game. Um, one of the things that has been really uh, beautiful for me to see are just the longstanding interfaith relationships that people have with one another I just today got an email from a Catholic woman and a Muslim woman in, I I think it was in Minnesota. I'll have to go back and check, but um, they emailed me to, to, to let me know that um, they'd read my book, but more importantly, to tell me that, um, that they had been friends for, for 30 years and had spent so much time uh, together um, and just were, were living in solidarity and living what um, what we call the dialogue of life. Um, and I think that's the most important thing is to live out this everyday sort of dialogue that doesn't need to be scheduled on the calendar, um, that we don't have to fit in amid all of our other activities, but simply um, being present to those around us and and walking with them in an open and in a, and, and a charitable way.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Jordan. You shared tremendous amount of knowledge and information with me really appreciate it at the end of the program i ask my guests to close the program with something meaningful about peace and about kindness and compassion and i want i would like you to do so
1: sure so i'm going to read a brief prayer that i um, wrote in the back of my book um, it's a joint prayer for Christians and Muslims, um, but I think many, many people could pray this prayer uh, together. It's meant for interreligious prayer settings or other things like that. It goes like this: Merciful and compassionate God, who created humanity in unity and in diversity, help us to be, to be peacemakers, and inspire us to repel evil with good. Help us to love our neighbors, to welcome the stranger, and to turn enemies into friends. Guide us as one community as we strive on the path of justice, peace, and understanding. Amen.
0: Amen. That said, um, thank you and have a good day. Thank you. Sure.